Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. And this time it's lovely to welcome back to the show political scientist Paula Surridge to talk about by-elections. Welcome, Paula. Hi, Mark. Nice to be here. Now, one of the most popular trio of episodes last year was with you after the Lib Dems won Cheshman Amersham. So in the light of Tipton Honiton, let's see if we can repeat that trick of a popular episode. A few days ago, I appeared on the Lib Dem podcast with three other Lib Dems doing a victory lap about how brilliant the Tipton Honiton result was and what good news it was for the party. So, Paula, with your advantage as a more dispassionate outsider, how much cold water do you want to throw over all of us in the Lib Dems? I think it'd be a bit mean to throw too much cold water at the moment. I think I think you should enjoy what was a spectacularly good result. I don't think there's any any amount of caveats to place on that, really. It was a spectacularly good result. But there's always a but. <laughs> and the hey. but here is that we we know, you know as well as I do, that many of the seats that are won at by-elections then flip back to the original party at the following general election. You, you can't maintain the level of campaign intensity across all the seats you're competitive in in a in a general election and there's that thorny issue of of turnout as well to to take into account so i think it it gives the lib dems cause for hope but it also starts to give you some headaches i guess they're nice problems to have in some respects but it starts to mean that there's big questions to ask about choosing target seats for the next general election and that tension I think we've talked about it before between areas of previous strength of which you know Tiverton had a a reasonably large Lib Dem vote back in 2010 and those new areas that we talked about after Chesham and Amersham I think I called them the affluent remain areas which Tiverton certainly isn't and I think that's the tension now for the Lib Dems is working out how to actually target the right seats and working out what those are. And I think that's where the tension's going to lie for the Lib Dems going forward, to to keep expectations where they're manageable, but also working out if you're going to target 30 seats, what 30 seats are they going to be and how are you going to choose them? So before we dig a bit into the sort of seat that Tifton Honiton was, and still is, I believe it's still there, still is, (laughs) Uh, it might be worth just picking up your point about by-elections more generally, because I think there are two different predictive qualities potentially of a parliamentary by-election. One is about what will happen in that seat in future, and the other is what does it tell us about the state of politics more generally. And I think there's a bit of a, almost not quite a paradox, but there's a weird inconsistency between those two in that if you look at seats that change hands at a parliamentary by-election the proportion that are then held by that party that won them at the subsequent election it's a pretty hit and miss record across all the parties across all the decades so it's definitely if you win a by-election it's an awful lot of hard work to have a chance of then winning at the general election however will jennings posted i thought a really interesting graph about swing against the government in by-elections in a particular parliament versus change in the government's vote share at the subsequent general election. And I'll include for listeners a link to the graph in the show notes. And that actually shows quite a consistent and reasonably clear relationship. And it's almost like, although the the by-election may not be that predictive of what's going to happen in that constituency, 
that it's more predictive about the state of politics overall. So do you do you think there's some credence in my ability to rescue something in terms of saying, oh, no, this by-election really is good news for what might happen for us in the future? Absolutely. And I, and, and I think I'd, I'd put alongside that some of the reasons why I think that's the case for the Lib Dems in particular, with the, the sort of string of by-election that we've had over the last 12 months. And it's it is it it demonstrates that the government are unpopular. I mean, we kind of know that from opinion polls, but politicians in particular seem to like actual hard ballots as evidence over opinion polls. So it reinforces that message of an unpopular government. But it also shows that the Lib Dems are now able to pick up those disgruntled conservative voters in a way that they didn't do to the extent many of us expected in 2019. So we expected there to be more of those kind of fed up conservatives, liberal leaning conservatives, remain conservative. We could give them a variety of names in 2019 and they didn't move in the numbers that we expected. And I think there were two factors primarily behind that, which I've probably mentioned before. Lots of people point to the Corbyn-led Labour Party as being a kind of fear factor for those Conservative Mm. voters that kept them there. But I think there was also an element of a a sort of fear of a second referendum as well. Some of those voters may well have been Remain voters, but the slogan Get Brexit Done resonated with them. They just wanted the whole thing over with. Obviously, we could argue all day as to whether or not that actually happened, but it was a factor for those voters. And what we're seeing now, I think, is that the Lib Dems are able to take more of that vote than they were before. And you know, if we take the two by-elections together to distribute the vote a bit more efficiently as well. And that, I think, is, is really good news for the Lib Dems going into the next election, but not in seats like Tiverton necessarily, in seats where that margin's a bit closer. And that's reflected in the local election results as well, isn't it? That there's a fair degree of variation in terms of areas where the Lib Dems did well. But there is overall a pattern of the more remainery an area the more was at the referendum, the better we did in the May elections this time, with some really important honourable exceptions in the voting areas, particularly some areas in Northern England. But that pattern does seem to still hold. But it's interesting, as you say, it may be that the underlying values still irrelevant and what has but because the immediate imminence of are we going to reopen negotiations tomorrow with the EU because that isn't immediately in the forefront of people's minds that isn't therefore they're holding back such people from voting live there but in the Honiton itself I was really struck and again I'll include in the show notes a couple of graphs that you posted about comparing both the vote shares in all the general elections back to 97 in Tifton Honiton and North Shropshire and also comparing the demographics of the two seats. And uh, they are both remarkably similar, even as someone who had been to campaign in both places and you know, had looked over the numbers and so on, more than, more than most in them. I was really struck. I thought, crikey, this is, they're almost identical constituencies in a way. And I guess the fact that Tifton Honiton is in the Southwest with its own political culture may be slightly obscured to the world, the similarity in that, in that I think if Tiffin Honiton had been in, say, Lincolnshire, probably people would have lighted more on those similarities that you quite rightly spotted and said, oh, look, this is a carbon copy of, of last time, as opposed to, oh, this is different because it's in the southwest. But yeah, what did you make of, of those figures? Were you surprised when you when the graphs appeared on your screen? I was a little bit surprised. I didn't expect the similarity to be quite so striking. I guess demographically, I knew there'd be similarities, but then the the, the similarities in the political journey of the two constituencies were really striking as well. And I suppose, yeah, you, you had this kind of mythical Southwest 
quality to Tiverton, but actually it's not that different to a whole bunch of rural constituencies across the whole of England. And I think for me that also highlights the kind of limits of some of the electoral geography discussions that we have at the moment around red walls and blue walls and, and various other things, is that actually across England there are lots of similar constituencies that aren't necessarily all that close to each other. And it's really important to look at people and the places not to kind of use these broad brush approaches which can be hiding such a lot. I think it also for me meant that I was sort of expecting a Lib Dem win in Tiverton because the baseline was higher. So the demographics were more or less the same. Now for, for me, when I when I start looking at a seat from a Lib Dem perspective, I always take the 2010 share as the sort of baseline because it sort of shows what the potential was when the Lib Dems were at their highest, notwithstanding that relationships have, have changed. And so the the Lib Dem share in 2010 was about a third in Tiverton. It was about a fifth in North Shropshire. So you, it felt to me like it was a constituency where there should be a few more Lib Dem activists, a slightly higher base. And so it should be winnable because it was looking for a very similar sort of swing. Can I just ask a very nerdy question about your choice of 2010 as the baseline? Why 2010 rather than 1997? Boundaries. 2010 <laughs> was against the Labour incumbent government. And I think it's certainly from within the Lib Dems. And I think also if you look at the evidence from the outside, it feels very different when you're campaigning against a Labour government versus a Conservative government as to where is winnable or not. So, yeah, what's the reason for the 2010 being your baseline? So that it's a simple technical reason. I've got a data set where the boundaries don't change. <laughs> very easy to do. Yeah, no, it's a, and indeed, it was it was a high point in terms. It was of a high day, point for the Lib Dems, but then and it wasn't. So two thousand and five, you could also use, but two thousand five was a bit unusual. It's quite a low turnout election, so feel always feel like twenty ten just gives me quite a good read on a constituency. But if I'm then looking to see how. The Conservatives might do. I will then also look at 2015 to see how UKIP performed in 2016. So it's kind of picking up those flavours of constituencies from high points of the parties. So given that lightning has struck twice, as it were, in terms of both North Shropshire and Tiverton and Honiton, and then being these more rural, more leavey, less classic blue wall, if one could already use the word classic in association with the phrase blue wall. But yeah, less of the sorts of seats that we were talking about, say post Cheshire and Amersham as being looking good prospects for the Dems. What do you think that should, you know, should we just view that in the Lib Dems as well? It's just that's just a coincidence and not read too much into it. Or is there something more significant about a broader potential appeal for the party or danger for the Conservatives? So I think it it really shows that the Lib Dems are now able to to win over those disgruntled conservative voters. And so I think it does so show something broader that where there are close fights, the Lib Dems are going to be able to take those votes. But I think actually it also has something really important to say to those that talk about kind of progressive alliances and pacts and, and things like that, that actually there are places where the Lib Dems can take votes from the conservatives that Labour can't. And that's not necessarily on a constituency by constituency basis. It could be at the level of wards. So there's a dynamic there that is worth further investigation, I think, in terms of where voters are moving around. And I think that certainly seems to have been the take of many in the Labour Party, not all of them, but of many in the Labour Party about both of those by-elections, but Tipton and Honiton especially, of obviously knowing that they had finished second at the last general election there, 
but acknowledging that the party that was best placed to actually be able to get more votes than the Tories was the Lib Dems, even though Labour. And, and I think you know, that obviously you might expect Lib Dems to think that, but the fact that Labour thought it as well, it gives, gives that viewpoint a bit of extra credence, doesn't it? Yeah. And I guess the the other question about those sort of Brexit voting areas is is perhaps the way to wit in which voters may perceive the government's record on Brexit when the question of should Britain be in or out of the EU isn't the one that's immediately on the ballot paper. Because I was looking at some of the various polling about how people view Brexit has been going. And overwhelmingly, not surprisingly, Remainers think it's been going pretty badly, but quite a lot of leavers give quite negative answers to a range of questions. And I suspect that if they were then prompted with a follow-up about, and who do you blame for that, that, that that's where the difference between Remainers and Leavers will come out, that where, you know, across the board people think, you know, that trade is suffering and there are too many barriers because of Brexit, that Leavers will give put more blame on the EU. But when you're then faced with a fair by-election vote, actually, you know, even if you're a Leaver who might place a fair chunk of blame on the EU, if you also play, place a some blame on the government that becomes a reason to vote against the government to say let's give them a get bit for kicking to get their act together in a way that if it was an election much more tightly focused on Europe then their remaining lever views would, would would come through probably instead. Yeah I mean we've seen we've got some polling that should be out later this week where it does show that there's broad agreement between leavers and remainers that Brexit has been you know, a negative impact on the cost of living, a negative yeah. impact on trade, but less agreement in terms of impact on sovereignty issues and immigration and so on. So there are some, there is an element there that pro-remain or pro-rejoin campaigners could work on, but it it, it does need a, a kind of softly, softly approach, I think, to tease it out, not a kind of big stick we told you so approach which would just have people running running for the hills again so I think there are those things that are starting to appear as cracks and that are starting to feed against against the government because people do blame the government for some of that but I don't think it's something that opposition parties should be seeking to reopen in as a very clear dividing line at the moment. And do you think therefore that's a matter of patience and as it were letting events play out and that both it's events that are more likely to persuade people than politicians' rhetoric. But also, I guess the more time that elapses, the easier it is for people to say, well, circumstances are now different. I will therefore have a different view, as opposed to if you're in the immediate aftermath say, of the referendum, it's quite hard to change your view without there being an implicit, therefore, I must have been wrong. And we all don't like you know, admitting that we're wrong, but it's easier to change your view if there's more time between the original view and the change. Yeah, and certainly it's it's not difficult now to point at the events of the last two years and suggest that the world looks quite different now to how it did before. But I don't think I don't think those on the remain side kind of shouting at levers and saying you were wrong is, is going to be the way forward. It is about showing how things could be done differently without necessarily going as far as rejoining. It's showing about how things have perhaps been mishandled by the current government where they have been and, and making those kinds of arguments rather than painting it as a kind of leave remain divide, I think. Yeah, and I think what was notable in both of those two most recent Lib Dem by-election victories was the extent to which the farming community, which had been quite a bedrock of leave support, 
is really affected by the practical implications of trade being more difficult and more obstacles and more paperwork. And so, I mean, depending on how you want to define your terms, I don't think I would say that that means there's been a huge shift towards being pro-European in that sort of broader sense of quit, you know, ordering, ordering some Euro flag decals to stick on your tractor. But there has been a, a shift in, in a sense of, OK, what the government is doing on Brexit isn't working and therefore let's vote for someone else to, to get someone in there to argue our corner and to give the government a fright. I think it was also really interesting looking at some of the, I said I didn't visit any of the constituencies during the campaign, but so, so reading some of the reporting from the constituencies, particularly from, from Tiverton, the, the extent to which local issues really mattered as well for those by-elections, you know, read reports about local, a local school being a particular yeah. issue and so on. And I think some of that is also important in terms of how some of these rural constituencies are responding to a government agenda that doesn't seem to talk to them. And you know, the levelling up agenda doesn't seem to talk to them, yet those constituencies also have real difficulties with infra- infrastructure in all sorts of ways. I think the local issues in both cases, and indeed in Cheshire and Amersham, were in one sense specific to the constituency, but really the underlying point was about public services really struggling. And it so happened that in Tiverton and Honiton, that particularly was illustrated by the state of the local school, the state of the, the ambulance response times, ambulance response times again, and A&E waiting times, particularly in North Shropshire. Ambulances and A&E, not so much an issue in Cheshire and Amersham, actually, that was much more, pop, you know, the, the, yeah, the literal Lib Dem pothole campaigning. So, but a whole variety, but the common theme running through all of that is public services under a huge amount of stress. And if you're not in the red wall, what is the Conservative message for you? Now, obviously, if I, as a Lib Dem, was living in the red wall, I would still very much not be persuaded by the government's red wall messaging. But I would at least feel that the government has a message that is directed at people like me and where I you know, would, would be living if I was in the red wall in a way that if you strip out what they're saying about red wall, there's very little at the moment that the government has to say other than on very tangential issues you know and and I think that's the real worry for the government as I said after Cheshire and Amersham you know is that there just wasn't a Tory message and in all three by-elections there hasn't really been a Tory message so much so that in some of their final literature in Tiverton and Honiton it was really all about you know don't make this about politics in Westminster make this about you know a local choice about who will be best best for your community I thought well just you know, when you've been in government for so long, you should have something positive to talk about what you've achieved. If you think, you know, Labour, although obviously in the end you know, they crashed to defeat in 2010, they were still having things to talk about, about this is what we've achieved in government. This is what we've done on public services. This is what we've you know, done on the economy. It, it's remarkably bereft of, of relevance, I think, to most of the country, the Conservative message. Or am I just being too starry eyed for my sort of partisan <laughs> outlook? No, I, I think you're right. I think it doesn't speak to those traditional conservative areas, particularly the rural areas, but there's large parts of the southeast that perhaps feel that levelling up isn't really working for them. But also many of the concerns that they're trying to address aren't actually the concerns of the Red Wall either. Yes, um, that's that as well, isn't there? And so they're kind of not talking to anybody very effectively. They're putting off their traditional voters by trying to keep hold of those 
new conservative voters, but they're not talking to them effectively either, especially not during a cost of living crisis. And so I guess that leads to the question about how significant really is the run of by-election defeats that conservatives had. So three defeats to the Lib Dems, and also notably in the last round of by-elections, a, a seat lost to Labour as well. So we defer Labour's last first gain off the Tories for about a decade, which neatly matches actually that in the local elections in May, their lead over the Tories was their biggest lead for a decade. So, but I guess there are two parallels to draw. One is the 92 to 97 Parliament, in the middle of which 93, 94, there was a similar run of the year with three Lib Dem by-election gains off the Tories with huge swings. And indeed, between that year and the year that we've just had, you populate most of the top 10 of the biggest by-election swings since the Second World War table. And that, that period obviously ended in the crashing Conservative defeat in 97. On the other hand, as indeed we heard some Conservatives talk about in the aftermath of their double defeat a couple of weeks ago, is the other parallel is the 87 to 92 Parliament, where again, the Tories you know, lost various by-elections and including the last time they lost two by-elections on the same day, one to Labour, one to the Lib Dems within prior to, to this year was in 1991. But of course, they went on to win the 1992 election. So even taking what we were saying earlier about sort of Will Jennings' draft in mind, how do you have a sense of which of those two versions of the 90s uh, we're in? Or indeed, I mean, maybe it's just not a useful parallel at all. But yeah, what's your take on either of those parallels and what we can learn from them? So I'll, I'll start by kind of challenging the, the question, but then I will answer the question. Uh, the proper, proper academics response. <laughs> so first of all, I do find some of these particularly long-term historical trends problematic as ways of comparing elections because the electorate has changed in, in so many ways, but critically in its attachment to political parties. So it wouldn't be surprising now to see historically large swings because voters are more volatile. So in, in some senses, I find those historical comparisons less useful than, you know, I, I've seen several this week comparing, you know, the ratings of opposition leaders versus prime ministers. And I just, I'm not sure how useful they are because, because the way people view parties, the way people view leaders is so, so different now. Having said that, comparing kind of the, the, the possible 92 versus 97 scenarios. I think if the Conservatives stick with Johnson, they're looking at 1997, because I think his ratings are not now going to improve. He is unpopular with all different groups of voters, not any one particular section, and that is just going to drag the vote down everywhere and make the possibility of losing seats to the Lib Dems in some parts, seats to Labour in other parts, much more of a possibility, put you more, more, like, more like the 97 um, sort of trajectory. Although probably leading to a hung parliament rather than a majority. So the, it's not, an, it's not a, a simple fit. Yeah. I think if they can decide to choose change leader and can find the right leader, and I don't even know if they've got the right leader in parliament, then it could be closer to 1992 because I think, I think a new leader could shore up some of those traditional conservative areas a bit more and make it just a little bit harder for the Lib Dems to win some of those seats. Again, might appear slightly more exciting than, than Keir Starmer in some seats, making it just a little, you know, just enough harder for it, for it not quite to be a winning 
coalition at the next general election. But and as you say, there's that important difference between those two parliaments is that in 87 to 92, the Conservatives had a really unpopular leader, had a series of really bad election results, including the Lib Dem win in the Eastbourne by-election off the Tories, and then they dumped their leader. In the 92 to 97 Parliament, they had again run of really bad election results, had a really a party that was really lagging in the polls and a leader who was really lagging in the polls. They had a leadership election. They stuck with their leader. And so perhaps, you know, as you say, I mean, one of the, the, the important questions of Conservatives is, do they have another go at changing their leader? But I guess the other thing that worked out for John Major when he replaced Mrs. Thatcher in the 92 to 7 Parliament is there was also a single totemic, hugely unpopular policy he was able to largely drop. So the poll tax, replace it with the community charge. And you know, for all the arguments about the merits of the community charge as a policy, particularly the way we're lumbered with property valuations that no government has dared try to revalue in the interim. And so the whole, you know, the whole way that council tax now is based on a really weird set of property values. And all that, but for all of those. The basic story for people who followed politics a bit was Mrs. Thatcher introduced a poll tax, massively unpopular. John Major came in, got a walloping in in, in a by-election, then said, OK, we've definitely got to drop this policy. New policy came in. And it's hard to see what the equivalent for the Conservatives would be now. I mean, I guess dropping Brexit would be of that even bigger scale. But I think that's I mean, what is the world in which we get a new Conservative leader who then brings takes Britain back into the EU? I think that's a even a novelist would struggle with that. So, so there isn't really it, the, the moment as we were talking about earlier. The problem is what, almost what the Conservatives are not doing. So it's not like they've got a simple policy they can just, you know, a new leader could drop, get a honeymoon, and hope that sees them through to an election. I suppose the thing that a new leader can do isn't about policy per se, but it's about perception. So they can stand up for transparency and honesty and those kinds of things. And at that point, try and make the clean break with the past that might work in a similar way, given that those are the things that seem to have had the most impact on public policy. Yeah, all the policy things matter, all the crumbling public services matter, but it was those big hits to leadership ratings that that did the most damage. Yeah, it's certainly very easy to imagine with a new Tory leader what their first week of initiatives and announcements on a small scale might be, Uh, you know, how they would reintroduce, uh, appoint an ethics advisor, give that ethics advisor a degree of independence, allow them to investigate the PM without having to have the PM's permission, have the ethics advisor maybe report to Parliament, there's a whole set of other similar things that would definitely set out the stall as being different in a way that John Major actually did that. If I remember correctly, particularly in his first views, that he 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 very much was clear. You know, took a here are some example things I am changing, um, and then the, but then there was the big change with the poll tax to follow yeah. through on that, and that's I think is hard to see. I guess there'll be some in the Tory party who would say, oh, well, the thing is drop HS two, say. Um, although given how much of HS2 is now yeah, literally being built, I live not that far from Euston Station, I can attest that literally being built. I, it's really hard to see what that big symbolic move would be. And, and it's it's easy to see on one side. So you could see a new Conservative leader making a big deal about tax cuts, for example, but that's not going to help them hold on to voters 
who want more public spending and who are concerned about their public services crumbling. So there's, you can see a way of bringing back on board some of the more traditional conservative voters, but that might cost you some of those newer conservative voters. And it's hard to see how, how the conservatives keep their coalition together. I've been working on this a little bit this week. All the parties ha have got divides within them, absolutely all of them. But what the Conservatives have managed to do is create a coalition with two sets of voters which don't have real commonality on either of the values dimensions. Mm. So they've got a group of kind of socially conservative but reasonably left-winging, left-wing-leaning voters that they picked up in the North in particular, not exclusively. And then they've got the... the the, the voters that are perhaps losing in Chesham, for example, possibly in Tiverton as well, who are more right leaning on economics, but are a bit more liberal. And how you find something that unites those two groups of voters is the, is the conundrum that they've got. And in 2019, the answer to that was Brexit in many respects. And I guess what they're trying to do now is make culture wars. The equivalent of that. Although, in 2019, the answer to that was also Corbyn to a certain extent. Yeah, and and I think it was it, it was sort of both Brexit and Corbyn in a way that culture wars and Starmer is just nothing like. I think Starmer is not Corbyn. Definitely, you know, there's a question about how whether he's Kinnock or Blair, or Blair, as it were. If we're going to go back to those 1990s analogies, but he's definitely not foot in this extended historical analogy. <laughs> but also on a lot of cultural issues, I think the difference is that actually the majority of public opinion is on the other side, you know, as we saw with Leave and Remain, the country is pretty divided, 50-50, and it, it varies a bit depending on how you ask the question and when you ask it. And obviously at that key referendum moment, it was 52-48 one way. But you look at most polling on sort of culture war type issues, and it's not, you know, it's not like that, that neat split. And there, there was some really interesting recent stuff from More in Common, about trans issues and it's not that people are split 50 50 between wanting to be horrible or wanting to be compassionate towards trans people it's the overwhelming majority want that compassion so i think it's really hard as indeed we've seen with the railway strikes it's really hard to run that sort of traditional right-wing populist playbook and have it work as a substitute for brexit isn't it it is and it's particularly hard to do that during a cost of living crisis you know people might be able to get upset about statues when they're in lockdown and they've not got much more else much else to think about but when they're seeing spiraling petrol prices every day they drive past the supermarket they might wonder why you're talking about these issues that really don't affect their lives on a day-to-day -day basis and why you're not talking about how you're going to get their fuel bills down how you're going to stop prices rising in the shops and those kinds of issues so I think that's also the real tension for the conservatives is that the things that they want to talk about that might unite just about enough of a coalition for them, people aren't interested in them at the moment. They're not salient issues for people. And I think, I guess there's an irony in there that quite often socially conservative people have attacked socially liberal people as be it, as talking about and concentrating on things that are relevant to people's lives. But in a way, we're almost in a situation that's the mirror uh, of of that. But I think also the challenge for the Tories is that, you know, the, the very straightforward, traditional right-wing conservative answer to the, well, what would be the big policy change would be a whole set of tax cuts and so on. And although that would have a direct impact on people's lives, I just don't think it works as an answer to those voters 
who in each of those the three parliamentary by-elections have abandoned the Tories, in large part because of services not being good enough. You know, saying to somebody in North Shropshire who really worried about, you know, hours long wait in the local A&E service, but it's okay, I'm going to cut your taxes, might at least, might at best get a bit of, well, I guess that might help me pay, you know, for my next food bill or, you know, next gas and electricity bill. But at best is ir irrelevant and at worst actually might come over as worsening the problem. Well, you're going to cut taxes. That means you're going to cut the services even more. So, yeah, I, I well, lots of reasons, I think, to feel that politics is very different now from how it felt in the immediate aftermath of the 2019 election, because that did feel a bit like, you know, we're at the start of a new period of renewed conservative dominance with a large majority and so on. And that's, although the government technically has a large majority in spirit <laughs> and in practice, it's not actually acting like a government with a large majority, is it? No, not at all. And I do wonder the extent to which that kind of period between 2015 and 2019, where, you know, Parliament was on a knife edge, backbenchers had a lot more power than they had had previously, that they all got a bit used to that. And so they're all still just a little bit harder to manage than they used to be because... Well, because yeah, I, I don't know off the top of my head what the proportion of MPs are who have been MPs since before 2015. But it's not that higher proportion, is it? There's been a lot of churn across the last few parliaments. So I think there's also something about, you know, and I guess in a way I'm perhaps betraying the fact that I can probably no longer call myself young. You know, those those references back to the 90s and, you know, even the occasional reference to Michael Foote in the 1980s, there's a whole chunk of voters and people in politics for whom that is way in the past. But also, as you say, some of those norms, as I guess we would term it, of parliamentary behaviour, actually predate when an awful lot of MPs started being an MP for the first time. Yeah, yeah, definitely significant changes in the makeup of, yeah. of Parliament. And, um, and I, just to segue then to a related issue, but one where I know you like throwing cold water on Lib Dems a little bit, so I thought it'd be worth touching <laughs> on. We've talked a lot about parliamentary by-elections. Obviously, there's also the council by-elections that we have most weeks of the year. And which I think do genuinely provide an interesting pointer to what's going on, as long as you take them at scale and understand, you know, the variation week to week. One shouldn't read too much into it. So, for example, I think the fact that for a long stretch up until May, Labour were making almost no council by-election gains from the Conservatives, but actually have started making gains since May seems to me, and I use an example that's not about the Lib Dems to sort of make the point, it's not just about bigging up my own party, but it seems to me that's a genuine change, which in a way is also reflected in other bits of evidence that we have. So I think there is value in, in looking at council by-election results and trying to learn lessons from them. But I know you're a little bit more sceptical, perhaps, of the value of that. I think looking at them, I mean, I, I, look at, I look them up every week when they come in. I'm not, not going to suggest that I don't look them up. But I mean, I spoke and wrote just before the local elections about the difficulty of reading from the actual local elections because of yep. who turns out at those elections. And I think that that's the same scepticism I have about the by-elections there is, you know, I guess somebody standing with a large family could turn some of these because you're talking about such small numbers. But it is something to look at at scale. And it is something actually that was noticeable, I think, before the 2019 general election, that 
the Lib Dems weren't making the kind of progress in some of the places you'd think they might that we were looking for. So it should have in some senses been a kind of warning sign that some of those conservative voters we've been talking about weren't being able to be won over at that stage. So I don't think it's completely useless, but I wouldn't put too many political bets on on the basis of it. I'd still, what, I'd still rather have my national poll in. <laughs> and what do those by-elections tell you at the moment then? Or is it pretty much it's the same as the picture from the parliamentary by-elections and the national polls? They seem very variable at the moment. I mean, you'll see an odd surprising one where the Conservatives have suddenly jumped up 10, 15%, but it's usually because an independent has stepped down somewhere and things like that. So they're very difficult to read. But I think the main thing is that they do show some volatility there. And I think that's something that we will need to be really aware of over the next two years, that voters are not attached to political parties in the way that they used to be. And that can make all sorts of results really, really unpredictable. I mean, I'm just looking at the tally of seat changes in the by-elections held since the May local elections, up until the you know, time of recording, so numbers may be a bit different when people are listening to this. But I think there is an interesting story here, which is the Tories are down a net of eight seats, and Lib Dems are net up four, Labour net up two, Greens net up two, everyone else net no change. And I think that does reflect, firstly, an unpopularity of the government, but also, although it's four Lib Dem gains, two Green, two Labour, in a way, you know, as you say, give it another couple of weeks, that, that, that numerical balance might be a little bit different. It, so it's not that it's the Lib Dems that are dominating, but at the net gains, it's actually the net gains are fairly spread. And that could be good news for the Conservatives in terms of a fractured anti-Conservative sort of set of voting at general election. Or it could be quite worrying news for the Conservatives about voters and parties in where they choose to campaign hard being increasingly savvy and selective and therefore mobilising the anti-conservative vote more effectively. Now, I think definitely which of those two scenarios you think is more likely, the by-elections can't give us the answer to that. But I do think the by-elections are a useful further bit of illumination that that is one of the real questions about the course of politics in the next few years. And I pick on that because I think this is one of the few areas where basically the national polls can't tell us because a national poll that puts the Lib Dems on 15%, say, could be a, a fairly uniform 15%, or it could be massively varying between the seats that the Lib Dems are most in contention in or not. And so although I think on a lot of stuff, you're right, the answer is we'll look at a national poll. I think this is one of those issues that a national poll, and also polling to ask people if they'll vote tactically, is really difficult. I mean, I, I, when you, it's one of those areas where different wording of the question produces very different results. And there's also a large question about how predictive a poll is about whether people will actually vote tactically, partly because of the elapse of time between when, if you're asking them now and how many bar charts they'll get from the Lib Dems through their left. You know, there's lots of reasons why I think national polls very understandably can't pick up tactical voting. So I think that is an example of where the local by-elections do provide a bit of additional light. I think that also illustrates the, the point I was making about voters not being attached to parties in the way that they used to be, in that, I'm not sure I want to use the word tactical voting necessarily, because I'm not sure what, yeah, I think I, I, we could have a whole other podcast about whether it's tactical or not. But if voters aren't attached to a party, if they don't see that in the kind of 
importance and significance of an expressive vote, they're much more likely then to vote for for how they think change can be accomplished, whatever that change is. And so in that sense, it should be, I think, more worrying for the Conservatives as, as, as the government at the moment, that people are, are willing to move around and, and find different parties and try out different parties to try and bring about change. They're not just voting in terms of loyalty in the way they might have done 30 years ago, perhaps. So lots of interesting things to come in British politics. Definitely, I'm sure there will be plenty of things to discuss with you if you're willing to come back on future episodes. But before Never we wrap, what, is there one bit of advice you would give to the Lib Dems based on, you know, having read the rooms on the parliamentary by-elections and so on? Is there anything that strikes you as the sort of key thing the Lib Dems need to understand or change or worry about? So I've already said, you know, the, the choice of target seats is going to be critical because we all know that no party can campaign with that kind of intensity everywhere. So that's absolutely critical. But I think the and, and, and I give this advice to all parties is that it's voters that vote, not places. So think about voters, not these broad brush geographical areas. Don't get so excited about the blue wall that you forget there's a seat like North Shropshire, things like, you know, just yeah. don't 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 assume that the geography is the key think about groups of voters and how you can move those off and i think that then leads you to find your target seats in a more useful way than than drawing lines on maps so sort of think about the voters and then see where the voters who are winnable happen to live and therefore that's yeah interesting yeah. and whether and how they might match up to obviously the margins that you need to overturn because those really wild swings are not likely to be repeated in general elections but there are lots of places where more moderate swings certainly could be so with half a bucket of cold water thrown on excitable lived tents <laughs> thank you so much for your time paula that's been really fascinating people can find paula on twitter at p underscore surridge with a double r myself at mark pack and this podcast at bar chart podcast do look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed, including the various graphs that we've talked about. And I presume people will be able to find on your Twitter account in due course that polling that you talked about coming out shortly on European issues. Yeah, if you look out for that on the UK and a Change in Europe website, it'll be published on there. I will include that website in the show notes as well. So thank you very much, Paula. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you did enjoy listening, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you.